we're not meant to finish our work. Like the work of Hamza Khan, the work of Nabil Jafar is inherently unfinished. There's no way we can get it done in our lifetime. We can make a significant enough contribution, but if you were to zoom out and look at the totality of time, uh, we will have just constituted one slight movement in one small branch of the universe, of existence, of even just the human history. My next guest is a friend and mentor, Hamza Khan. Hamza is a multi-award winning marketer and entrepreneur. He's the managing director of the Student Life Network, Canada's most comprehensive resource hub dedicated to helping and empowering millions of students across the country. He co-founded both Splash Effect, a boutique marketing and creative agency, as well as Skills Camp, a soft skills training company. He's an instructor at Seneca College and Ryerson University, teaching courses on digital marketing and social media. He's a two-time TEDx speaker with his TED Talk on leadership gaining over 1.2 million views. He's also a two-time author with his second book titled Leadership Reinvented, launching in early March. In this book, he discusses how we can foster servitude, innovation, diversity, and empathy in the workplace. He's also the host of the Ideas Into Action podcast. Through his consulting, writing, teaching, and speaking, Hamza empowers people and businesses to transform ideas into action. Without further ado, Hamza Khan. Yes, I want to get right into it. I was excited because uh, this, is, uh, this is going full circle. We started, uh, I got to know you from Mahfouz's podcast. And I think that was about three years ago. Uh, wow, has it been that long? I think That's wild. Yeah, I think it's been about three years. And when I got to hear your podcast with Mahfouz, I just jumped on your podcast. I started listening to your podcast. And I'm just mm-hmm. ideas into action. Yeah. Yeah, man. And I was intrigued by it. Like I listened to every, ep- almost every episode, uh, got introduced to all your speakers. That was exciting, man. That was exciting for me. Wow. And now here I am chatting with you and I hope to return the invitation and have you on ideas into action as soon as we get that up and running again. So this is awesome. I'm glad that we were connected through the ether, through the podcast universe that seems to be bubbling up between these Usual suspects, you know, Mafuz, Astawa, yourself, uh, all these people, Daniel, who comprise this really beautiful thing that doesn't have a name of like-minded, growth-minded individuals who are thinking critically about different subjects, whether it's education, burnout, leadership, wellness. Uh, it's such an exciting time to be doing this work. And thank you for for adding to that in a beautiful way with your new podcast. And congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations on launching this. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I think uh, one of the scariest part of starting the podcast was for me was um, how do I get people to believe that it's going to be something? So for somebody like yourself, Hamza Khan, who's been on so many podcasts to come on a podcast, like you said, second, uh, you were saying first guest. And so I'm glad it's not pressure. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the second guest on my podcast is somebody like Hamza Khan. Uh, oh, to- man. Yeah, because for me, it was worried. I was worried. I was like, how am I going to live up to, all- to his reputation? No, man, you got to shoot higher. I'm like a Z-list, Y-list celebrity at best, man. I'm not even on the charts, man, but <laughs> well, you, can start, you can start with me and level up. All good. <laughs> no, I feel like uh, that's where the imposter syndrome comes in, which is where <laughs> you're, you're, you have done a lot. And when I was planning to get you on the podcast, I was looking at everything that you're doing. Um, and it's crazy. It's crazy. You've done your, your second book now, uh, two mm-hmm. TED Talks. And that's what I want to take it back to, to uh, Burnout Gamble. What was, sure, your, man. what was your inspiration for that book in, in particular? 
Yeah, the inspiration for me was having gone through burnout myself. Well, two things rather. I didn't want to write the book. I, I, I had no desire to write the burnout gamble. It was not something I dreamed of, not something that I wanted to do even when the idea first came to me. I had always wanted to write a book and the book was always going to be about productivity. I think one day I'll get around to writing that book once I understand or rather become the book myself and I can, I can exemplify the lessons I wanna share in it. Anyways, I was sort of disrupted along that path when I experienced a pretty, pretty intense brush with burnout back in 2014, which compromised my health and forced me to stay at home for a very long time and ruminate on what had happened to me. And in my attempt to understand and unpack what had happened to me, I, I, I poured through as much literature was available to me, watched documentaries, listened to interviews, podcasts, talked to specialists, doctors, therapists, and tried to understand burnout and its underlying problem stress to the best of my ability as a recovering overachiever, as somebody who had just freshly experienced all 12 stages of burnout. And what I discovered in this process was actually quite terrifying. I came to the conclusion that this is a much bigger problem than most people are aware of, and that it deserves more people, the best and brightest minds that we have in the world to direct their attention, their time, energy, and attention towards addressing burnout at a structural level. How can we create a better world, better organizations, and a better economy that doesn't preheat people for burnout to the extent that it does, because the World Health Organization themselves have said that stress is the health epidemic of the 21st century. Um, it pales in comparison. COVID-19 pales in comparison to the effects of stress that are being felt across the world right now uh, and certainly will be increasing over time. So long story short, my motivation for writing the book was a little bit of fear and enlightenment. I had learned about this, uh, this topic of burnout and stress in a way that I think gave me the, the tools and the vocabulary to communicate it succinctly to others. But then also I felt a sense of urgency that we weren't doing enough to address this mm -hmm. at, at, a, at, at, a, at a root level. And so I felt like taking my musings, taking my journaling, taking my solar reflections, packaging them in the form of a book that would be accessible to people and then seeing what happens. It was a very natural process that stemmed from my own journey so, of so, having gone through burnout. So in your opinion, what is it that, uh, that leads to, is it uh, overdoing and overachieving that leads to burnout or is it the stress of it? So is it like doing a hundred things that leads to burnout or is it the stress that comes from not managing it well? At least in terms of occupational burnout, I think it comes down to performance pressure. It comes down to not feeling like you're enough internally. When Hamza or Nabil don't feel like they're perfect enough, efficient enough, progressive enough, satisfied enough, and innovative enough, we internalize that as performance pressure. We feel this compulsion to prove ourselves, and then we end up working harder and neglecting our needs, which are the first three stages of the 12 stages of burnout. Mm -hmm. But then there's also factors largely outside of our control like competition, alienation, society, technology, loneliness, the epidemic of loneliness, and uh, economic downturn, the economy. So when you look at the factors from without, the, these castle factors, C-A-S-T-L-E, competition, alienation, society, technology, loneliness, and the economy, and then you pair that with 
the sort of hallmarks of performance pressure in modernity, progress, efficiency, perfection, satisfaction, innovation, it ultimately comes down to one word, enough, E-N-O-U-G-H, a word that I think everybody who's listening to this podcast needs to define for themselves. What does enough look like for Nabil? What does enough look like for Hamza? What does enough look like for you, the listener? If you don't define what enough looks like for yourself, you open yourself up to the potential to burn out because society is rather impersonal at the moment. Mm -hmm. I would go as far as saying that depending on where you work and which communities you're in, your society might actively be trying to burn you out. I remember working for organizations where the CEO bluntly said to me, part of our business model here is burning people out. We get them in, we work them hard, these young graduates, and then we churn them out and replace them. And to me, that is a style of leading that is a structural problem that needs to be addressed as soon as possible. Hence why I needed to put the burnout gamble out there to raise the consciousness and awareness of this problem and hopefully galvanize more people to speak about it. And I think I might have done that because the fact that you are having me on this podcast right now indicates that maybe not through me, but maybe I've helped to tangentially create a sense of urgency in you and an interest in you, a genuine interest to want to learn more about burnout and share your own musings and reflections with others. And so yeah, I'm confident that this is working, even if it's, even if it's only truly touched one person. Yeah. And I think uh, the reason that I bring that up is that, um, and I've heard it a few times is that even uh, in a women, women in leadership conference that I was at, they talked about how women feel like they have to be the superwoman. They have this superwoman syndrome where they have to do everything um, and they try to be the best at it and how to deal with that. And I think I see the same thing with you where it's not superwoman, but more like you do everything. You're a writer, you're a public speaker, you're a CEO. You've done all these different things. And when you talk, you talk about burnout on one hand, but you've done all these things. How do you bridge that gap between, oh, I've done all these things, but I'm managing burnout at the same time. And I'm trying to be enough, but I'm also at the same time doing a lot. Uh, how do you bridge that gap? Yeah, and it's a really interesting gap that you bring up. You know, one of the most common questions that I get whenever I speak about burnout is, what would you do differently? Would you, would you avoid burnout? Would you avoid the, the pattern of overwork that led you to burnout? I don't know if I would do anything differently because I don't think I would have these insights. I wouldn't have this understanding, a vivid, visceral understanding of burnout if I didn't pass through it. But when I tally up the downsides that uh, I've experienced as a result of burnout. You know, I've lost some professional mentors. I've, uh, you know, lost money through through projects I wasn't able to see through to the end. I've I've garnered some ill will from people who I've let down when I was burning out. Uh, some close friendships have ended. Some family relationships. I mean, when I when I flamed out in 2014 and for the resulting years afterwards, there was collateral damage that happened all around me. I wish that. I, I didn't cause that much damage, but you know, I got to charge to the game. That's, that's what happened. It is what it is. Could I theoretically have approached my life differently and arrived at the same set of conclusions that I have now? Perhaps. It would have taken a longer time, and I don't think it would have been nearly as interesting, but I would have certainly been able to minimize the amount of wear and tear on my mind, body, and soul, if you will, if I had just stepped and tiptoed out of my comfort zone consistently versus what I did when I was an overachiever. And what I did as an overachiever was I was perpetually outside of my comfort zone. I was so far outside of my comfort zone that 
I couldn't even rest properly. I couldn't get enough sleep. I couldn't um, calm my mind and, and, and subdue that inner imposter and that negative self-talk because I was perpetually stressed. I was stressed all the time. Mm-hmm. And we do a sinister thing. And at least this is something that, you know, I think that people who began their careers or, or were working, and especially if you worked in freelance, in a freelance capacity or in an entrepreneurial capacity, even an entrepreneurial capacity in the last 10 years, you subscribe to hustle culture. You subscribe to this idea of rolling up your sleeves and getting things done, fail fast, fail early, push yourself to the limit, energy drinks, hackathons, blah, blah, blah. And we glorified overwork. We lionized the sort of people that uh, when you look back now, they engaged in really destructive ways of thinking, being, and living, frankly. So there's had to be, there had to be Nabil, a lot of unlearning and relearning mm-hmm. of myself, a lot of deconstructing and reconstructing of myself in order to appear to you the way that I am right now. I know that was a long roundabout answer that just spawned a couple of different places that we can take this, but. Well, yeah, and that's the thing, right? So I think failure or, or relearning is what uh, was one of the ingredients to your success. And I, and I was looking, I was listening to your uh, podcast with Alif this morning. Uh, and okay. you, you were talking about- Shout out to Alif, yeah. Alif, that was a great podcast. And that Thank was, you, man. He's yeah, a character. That was, one I was hooked on, uh, especially because you talk about imposter syndrome. Uh, because what I want to do with this podcast is that show people that anything can be accomplished. That there's, uh, that people, like the whole idea of the mask- when somebody's wearing a mask, it's like you don't know who they are. But when they take off that mask, they become a person like you and I. And so when I interview these people who are successful, who have done it before, it gives you a path to say that I can accomplish exactly what they did. And that's what I want to hear from you is that what is it that you did, a young Hamza Khan did at 22, at the start of university, at the end of university, high school, at that point in your life where your career started, what is it that you did differently that made you successful in a way that others are not? Wow, man, that's uh, whew, how much time do we have? <laughs> I, uh, I'll try to keep it short for the listeners, right? Because I know that I sometimes have a tendency, especially when I'm answering questions that I don't, I haven't answered a lot. I, I tend to get too verbose and, and I create more word soup than there are people to drink it. You know what, man? I'm, I hang on to your every word. <laughs> so hopefully. I'm, I'm trying to work on this, man. I'm trying to work on this. So, so what did I do differently? Man, Nabil, I took probably the most inefficient road to get to where I am right now. I, I didn't have to take as many steps to get here as I did. Am I more grounded? And, and do I feel more certain with my points of view? Am I able to draw from a well of experiences that allow me to continue to experience success? Yes. So, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not mad that it took me this long, but I'm always curious if there was a better, more efficient streamlined version of this. Anyways, for me to get to where I am right now, I had to, man, internalize an idea. And it's an idea that I didn't have the vocabulary to string together as succinctly as I'm going to do for you in just a few seconds here. I would describe this idea in different ways, but the gist of it has come down to this current manifestation of the idea. And it's the idea that you can't always make the right decisions, but you can make a decision and then make it right. And I think this is also what I shared with you at York University when I did my keynote on Ikigai, this Japanese framework for finding your transcendent purpose, which is made up of four overlapping circles, what you love, what the world needs, what you can be paid for, and uh, what you're good at. 
And if you're able to sort of identify all four of those rings, you can find in their overlap, the thing that you were meant to do for the rest of your life. For me, I took an iterative approach to where I'm at right now. I didn't have the answers to any of those questions, but what I did is I, I created as many experimentations, ex ex experiments as I could, whether that was interning, volunteering, starting organizations, um, you know, meeting new people, traveling, informational interviews. I just did more things. I engaged in more activities, more interactions over time. And what that did for me is it gave me some things that I could point to and say, I liked this about it. I didn't like that about it. Mm -hmm. So let's use a job as an example. The work that I do right now with Student Life Network and Iconic, I'm more self-actualized than I've ever been in my life. I love almost everything about this, these jobs, right? 99% of it is amazing. There's this 1% of it that is mostly admin that I don't like. Right. And so the next job that I get, you know, whatever that next challenge is, probably within Student Life Network and Iconic itself, probably a new role within the organization, I'm hoping to get rid of the admin TDM aspect of it. So 100% of what I do is amazing. But once upon a time, that equation was totally flipped. My first job, I hated 99% of it. I loved 1% of it. Mm -hmm. But I made sure that the next job that I had had more of what I loved and less of what I didn't love. And the number became 98.2, 97.3, 96.4, And that gradual 10-year process of trying to find out what I loved, what I'm good at, what I can be paid for, and what the world needs brought me at the end of those 10 years to a more refined version, a more fulfilling version of Hamza that you see today. This version of Hamza is the best version of Hamza that has ever existed in history, but it's not the best version that will exist in the future. Wow, that's, uh, those are words that leave me speechless, especially even the first time I heard it on uh, Ali's podcast. But in terms of uh, in a self-development uh, aspect of it, was there certain things that you, so I know you mentioned a bunch of things that you did getting rid of, of the bad, getting rid of the negative side of it. In terms of self-development, was there a lot, at that point in your career, let's say of 22, was it something you saw yourself getting to where you are now? Um, so did you work on your self-development to get to where you are now? Or was it figuring it out along the way? Yeah, man, I, I'm, wow. My partner Bailey asked me the other day, she's like, how, how does it feel to be you right now? And I told her, frankly, I'm confused. My, my dreams for myself, I reached all of them a couple of years ago. So I'm in uncharted territory. Mm -hmm. I actually don't know how to feel and what to feel and, and how to position myself for the future. So I'm very much in a state of learning at the moment. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, it's conversations like this, and it's the wisdom that comes from having done this uh, full cycle of growth to a plateau that is preparing me for that next leap forward. I'm aware that I've reached a sort of plateau and I need to either renew myself, reinvent myself, or I'll experience the decline that comes from people who approach this junction in the road and don't know how to move forward. They don't know how to, how to, how to change themselves in response to a changing external environment. So for me, it's critical that I have a growth mindset during this time. I keep myself humble and keep myself open to new ideas and new perspectives. That includes reading a lot of books, 
listening to a lot of audiobooks, taking courses, expanding my academic ceiling through rigorous uh, masters, uh, the rigorous masters program, um, having reverse mentorship. You know, I consider you to be a mentor to me. I learn a lot from you. You know, seeing you move through the world, seeing what you share online. I'm going to listen to your first episode of the podcast shortly after this. I've got a long drive coming up ahead of me. Um, it's it's being a sponge being open to the idea that the external world is changing and I'm going to have to meet it. I'm going to have to prepare myself to thrive, not just survive in the external world. I'm going to have to thrive in it. And so what I try to do is I try to imagine the world that will be. I try to imagine the circumstances that will exist in that world and then define what it would take for somebody to thrive there, define those thriving elements as objectives, and then reverse engineer it into the present. We're in 2021 right now. What do I need to start doing now? What are the small consistent actions I need to implement and integrate into my daily life so that when we have this conversation in 2035, you're still saying the same things about me, just at a different level. For, so for a side note, the podcast uh, first episode will drop tomorrow. So we're Ooh. actually recording this the day before uh, the first episode drops. Um, so that's side note. And I noticed you gave a shout out to Sam Demma there. Yeah, uh, man. Small, awesome. consistent actions. Actions, man. I met I've met Sam Dem a few times, man. He's a super inspiring guy, super young, super inspiring guy, man. He's uh he's tapped into a different frequency than the rest of us. Yeah, and he's put in a lot of time, put in a lot of effort. And that's something I've noticed about you is that you're very humble about it. When you say that the reverse mentorship act, aspect of it, that's something that gets gets makes it easier for people to speak to you, for people to hear your story and say. I'm exactly, you were talking about your, uh, how you hang out with your boys. They, they roast you. They, they make fun of you. That's exactly how we all are. And that's what, <laughs> that's what takes off that mask and says, uh, Hamza is the same guy that I am. He's just put in more effort. He's uh, worked harder and it's something that I can do as well. Uh, now tying that to it, uh, how has the COVID uh, changed your, uh, your path and what you had uh, aspired for yourself? Everything. COVID has been a total catalyst for growth. Um, it's what inspired me to write the second book, Leadership Reinvented. I think it has made me, by every metric, a better person, a better, better son, a better brother, a better friend, a better partner, a better um, contributor, a better manager, a better leader. It has, it has made me hyper aware that the world is, is not as compartmentalized and fragmented as I thought it had become. And I was looking at the world for the last decade through the lens of advertising, marketing, communications, and especially social media. And I've become very cynical. I had come to believe that people are more different than they are similar, but COVID-19 has reset that understanding for me and has made me reappreciate the idea that we are more alike than we are dissimilar. Mm -hmm. And we've created these in many cases, artificial constructs to, to separate us and, and to isolate us mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Uh, and right now we're being physically distanced and physically separated. Like I, I regret that we're not able to record this podcast in person. The magic would be different. I hope that we're still able to recreate that feeling right now, but you know, it's not the same as if you and I were there in person kicking it before and you know, sharing the same air and, and, and feeding off each other's vibes. I don't know where I was going with that, but for me, COVID has, man, COVID, COVID has, wow. It, it has lent a sense of urgency to my work. Mm -hmm. 
I have realized through COVID that I don't have as much time as I previously thought that I did to get everything that I want to get done. There's so many more ideas I want to share with the world. There's so much more of an impact that I want to have. There's so much more people I want to help genuinely, but I don't have enough time. It's a race against the clock right now. Uh, COVID has exposed how interconnected and delicate and fragile our world is. And I'm genuinely concerned that if we don't move together in lockstep with the intention of addressing the systemic problems of our world, um, access to food, the environment, uh, our dilapidated healthcare infrastructure, that we're going to look back at COVID and be like, wow, remember when we had a relatively good grasp on the problem mm-hmm. and we had leaders and we had people that were obeying the laws and there was still some semblance of or- order in the world. I, I'm at all times, Nabil, preparing for two alternatives. In my head, there's always two pathways. Pathway one is utopia. Like we get it right, we fix it. The future of work, you know, we, we get through COVID, we usher in this great reset. And then tomorrow we're living in a, in a largely um, digital world where people have flexibility and have achieved a level of self-actualization because we've rescued time. That is scenario A, but in my in my mind, I'm always preparing for scenario B, which is the goddamn wasteland of Mad Max, where everybody has devolved into tribal tribes, and we're fighting over gasoline, and it's just you know cannibalism and warfare and volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, twenty four seven. Every decision that I make is governed by which version of the world am I help am I helping to steer us towards, with whatever limited sphere of influence I have to control that direction. So man, it's uh, <laughs> suffice to say, man, if you take my dashboard, if you take my brain and like plug it into yours, it, it gets it gets a little depressing and overwhelming at times, but well, I, I'm comfortable in this space now. And, and I look at it as, as beautiful because it's two sides of the same coin. It's like one, and like you said, there's two pathways. I think there's two sides of the same coin where it's like COVID could help us to, could take us to that negative aspect. Where, uh, and then there's the other side where it's positive. When you talk about this podcast, we could have done it in person. I think for myself, I would not have been able to launch a podcast because of how overwhelming it is without the, the presence of COVID here. So there's two sides to the point. I would love to be in presence with you. Uh, but we'll I do think, it again, for sure. And, and that will happen after COVID. And we'll take, we will take that path. Another thing we see during COVID is while there's people going in a negative direction, there's people helping out. There's more people who are willing to help each other out. There's going towards a positive direction where after COVID, we'll be in a much better place than we were before COVID because we've seen a whole new world. I don't know if you would agree with that or how, how you'd see that. I hope so, man. I'm optimistic that we're, there's going to be more positive coming out of this and there are negative, but I am concerned about this narrative that we're all in this together. You know, you see a lot of politicians and corporations even jump on that sentiment, but the truth is we're not all in this together. COVID is disproportionately affecting certain populations. If you're older, if you have comorbidities, if you're a person of color, if you live in certain regions, if you have access to, to good food and, 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 and medical services. So I, I'm concerned that there's a few people, a small group of people, but I don't know this for a fact, it could be the vast majority of us, that are okay with moving forward into the new world, into the new paradigm with blood on our hands, quite literally, mm-hmm. having excised a certain uh, um, segment of the population grouped together across different intersectionalities from our world. I'm, I'm concerned that we might move into the future having neglected a lot of people 
in the desire to reopen the world, reopen the economy. And that, that terrifies me. I don't know if I would, I would be happy um, and optimistic in that future where if we all agreed collectively, like it's okay if people die. Mm-hmm. It's, and and that, that terrifies me. On the other hand though, I'm, I'm concerned that we're going to drag our feet and, and be in the state of affairs that we're in right now for a very long time. You know, we, we might even joke 10 years into the future. Like, remember when we thought that the lockdowns were going to end in 2021? Yeah. My mind is all over the place. I'm very scatterbrained with regards to this whole situation. But I come back to this idea that if we prioritize people, if we put people first, if we put the needs of others before our own, and if we can do that at scale as 7 billion people, I think we're going to make the right decision more often than we are going to make the wrong one. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think, uh, and that's actually what's happening is that we're opening the, the, the region is going to open it up again on Monday when the cases are still high. And I think we're saying, even back, going back to what you're saying, ending in 2021, I saw a tweet that said that we were supposed to end within three weeks. People thought a whole pandemic was going to end in three weeks. And now we're here. Yeah, one in. We're still on Zoom calls. We're still, um, the whole world is, I was even thinking back then, I was like, it's going to get to a point where we think we, can, we can't handle it anymore. And it's going to push us beyond that. It's going to push us beyond our limits to a point where we have to live with something we don't think we were ever able to live with. And that's and where- be a lot. Last night, my partner and I were watching this movie, Arrival. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if you've watched it uh, or if your listeners have watched it. Highly recommend, probably for me, top 10 sci-fi movies of all time. Wow. But, you know, we looked at each other and we were like, yo, if we were freaking out over a virus that we can't see, that is killing a segment of the population. If we were to get the virus, you know, statistically speaking, we'd be okay. We'd be sick. We'd be, um, you know, in pain for a little while, but then overall we'd be okay. We'd recover from this as, as 20 and 30 somethings. What the hell is going to happen when aliens come down? (laughs) We, we were buying up toilet paper and Clorox and raiding grocery stores over COVID-19 Man, that doesn't leave me very optimistic about the human race. If God forbid tomorrow we got a signal from the stars saying, oh, we're about to show up in, in T minus 24 hours. I yeah. think that there would be utter chaos. And, and that makes me want to play whatever part that I can with the amount of time that I have on this earth. I know I can't dramatically move the needle, but if I can contribute in any way to elevating human consciousness and, and increasing our capacity for compassion and connection, and coordination against some future unanticipated stressor, like an alien invasion. I want to do that. I want to help. I'm totally with you on that. I think even at, even 22, where it feels like you're still young and you have a long way ahead of you. For, for myself as a 22 year old, I feel like this is a long way ahead of me. I still don't feel like I'm moving fast enough. I'll be. Uh, we'll be talking about it or work at work. We'll be like, oh, this is some, something that we want to pursue. It's a crazy idea that's never been pursued before. And then you go on the internet and it's something that somebody's pursued before. We're not mm-hmm. moving fast enough. And all these goals that we have for the business, uh, they're all, it's all means to get to the bigger goal, which is to help society out, to make things better. Yeah. We're not moving fast enough in the business to be able to move fast enough to make the world a better place. It's like, yo, we're, we're so short on time. So I'm 100% on, on you with that. And Nabil, to that end, we're not meant to finish our work. Like the work of Hamza Khan, the work of Nabil Jaffer is inherently unfinished. There's no way we can get it done in our lifetime. We can make a significant enough contribution, but if you were to zoom out and look at the totality of time, 
uh, we will have just constituted one slight movement in one small branch of the universe, of existence, of even just the human history. I, I come back to this Greek proverb, which states that society grows great when wise people plant trees, the shade of which they know they shall never sit in. Mm-hmm. Let me say that one more time. Society grows great when wise people plant trees, the shade of which they know they shall never sit in. The work that you and I are doing, at some level we understand, and I'm certainly becoming more and more aware of this the older I get, I'm never going to see the world that I'm trying to create. It's not going to happen in my lifetime. You know, the burnout gamble, leadership reinvented, the TED Talks, the work that I'm doing through Wyconic and Student Life Network of this podcast, interactions that I'm having with people on social media, I'm doing with the intention that hopefully it'll make the world better for my children and my great-grandchildren. I think when I pass, my last thought will be like, I hope this works. I hope that I hope that this was worth something. I hope that Hamza waking up every day and expanding my time, energy, and attention towards solving these meta problems of youth unemployment and education reform and access to education. I hope I will have moved us in the right direction, even if I moved us only by a millimeter. Mm-hmm. But that's the whole point. It's not my job to finish this. I'm hoping that someone like yourself gets inspired by our interactions and you move it forward. But then you also have the understanding, just as I did with my mentors, that it wasn't my job to finish this. This is a this is a relay race. We pass the baton. We mm-hmm. pass the baton. We pass the baton across millennia. I like hearing that because it feels like uh, it makes it sound like it's not as over, it's not overwhelming anymore. No, and it's not, and it's not one person's problem to solve. Like this is not Hamza's problem to solve. This is not Nabil's problem to solve. This is our problem to solve. No, I, I love hearing that, and I think my my listeners, both of our listeners, will love to hear that uh, because it it just makes it like you don't have to do everything. You just have to do your absolute best, uh, and that's what it takes. Uh, going back to your book, this book that's coming out, Leadership Reinvented. I feel like it's uh, it, it's in writing your TED talk. It's the TED talk that you did about leadership that in writing. Is that what it's going to be like? Is that what we're looking for? You know what? I would say it's a sequel to my TED Talk. My TED Talk ends with the words, stop managing, start leading. This book begins with what were managers and what were leaders doing once COVID hit. Okay, wow. And it makes a very bold claim, perhaps the most sharp claim that I've ever made in any of my writing or any of my public speaking and thinking I'm now convinced that people were either ready for COVID or they weren't. There was no middle ground. There was not people who were like, oh yeah, I kind of saw this coming. I was kind of prepared. No, either you fell flat on your ass or you seemingly rose to the occasion. But my challenge to the readers is for the leaders who appeared like they stepped up during the pandemic, like if you thought that Justin Trudeau stepped up, that Eric Yuan stepped up, that Brian Chesky stepped up, that you... You know, pick pick your leader. If you if if there was any leader who you thought stepped up, I challenge you and your thinking to consider that maybe they stood out. Because in that moment of sudden unexpected stress, they were actually helpless. That they experienced what you and I experienced, what everyone experienced at the same time, known as the amygdala hijack. It's a phenomenon whereby you pro- produce the flight, fight, or freeze responses. So you have this part of your brain uh, known as the amygdala, which is responsible for stress response. And what happens when you experience something that is threatening, that um, you know poses great danger, 
is it overrides your prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that you need for creative decision-making, for complex decision-making, for high cognitive capacity thoughts, for problem solving, it overrides that and it flushes blood to your extremities. It gets you prepared to run, to fight. So regardless if you are Justin Trudeau or Donald Trump, you sink to the level of your training, you sink to the level of your character in that moment of stress. When COVID-19 took hold in March of 2011, Sorry, March of 2020. I wish it was 2011. My goodness. When COVID-19 <laughs> took hold in March of 2020, Justin Trudeau didn't become a better leader. Donald Trump didn't become a better leader. What happened is they actually sank to the level of their training, preparation, and character. And the rest is history. Well, well, look at where Trudeau is. Look at where Trump is. Look at how Trudeau is doing the right thing, the human-centric thing, by extending CRB, by looking after the populations in Canada that are being left behind by the pandemic, by thinking actively about getting people vaccinated, by stimulating the economy, by going through the motions, subjecting himself to this stress and, and frankly, humiliation from the opposition for a job that he is doing his level best at. Meanwhile, you had someone like Trump who was so caught up with narcissism and Machiavellianism and straight up psychopathy, believing that you know, this was not not something serious, worthy of consideration. Remember the early days of his pandemic response being like, it's going to go away. It's not going to be here for long. Yeah, Drink bleach. You can use UV lights to get it out of your system. Like, oh my goodness. And now look at USA, the epicenter of the, COVID, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. So the book is an attempt to, to, to explain and create a sense of urgency in the readers that they should invest today in themselves as leaders, reinvent themselves as human-centric, change-friendly, values-driven, and self-disrupting people that will form the nucleus of similar organizations because the future is not going to be forgiving to people, leaders who are avoidant, aggressive, and authoritarian. That version of leadership, that version of management is done. And COVID-19 has, has sealed the deal. You saw the way that Trump's presidency ended. You see how Theranos under Elizabeth Holmes ended. You see how WeWork under Adam Newman went. You see how Uber under Travis Kalanick went. I mean, there's countless examples of organizations that have failed. And the common denominator across all of them is that their leaders were managers. They were managing, not leading. And so this book is my, my, my contribution to that dialogue. So do you think it's two sides of, this, uh, of, the, of the same coin where Justin Trudeau is one side and Trump is the other? Or they're the side of the coin where it's like they're uh, actualizing themselves. And then the other side of the coin is people who actually became better, who actually okay. took advantage of the time to grow. Great question. Trudeau is maybe not the best comparison. Trudeau is not without his flaws. I think that Trudeau, um, you know, he's still, still high functioning, but he has the capacity to let perhaps the narcissism um, get in the way and, and override his ability to make good decisions. I think he's doing the best job that he can, but you know, uh, the criticisms are warranted. And I talk about Trudeau in the book and I acknowledge, you know, Trudeau's many follies. I think a better comparison, Nabil, would be Donald Trump and Jacinda Ardern, the prime minister of New Zealand, who right. the Atlantic has called the most effective leader on the planet. And I concur with that wholeheartedly. I mean, my goodness, her response to the Christchurch shooting, her response to a volcano eruption, her speech to campaign launch, the, the progress that she's made thus far, the fact that New Zealand was the first country in the world to be COVID free, and they've sort of 
compared to the rest of the world, perfected a system for now responding to outbreaks and variants, masterclass in leadership. Mm -hmm. And she exemplifies the bright side values, this model that I advance in the burn, uh, in Leadership Reinvented. It's the values of servitude, innovation, diversity, and empathy being operationalized and maximized in lockstep to create a solid core of an organization, to create like a diamond at the heart of the organization. Jacinda Ardern is the diamond at the heart of New Zealand. If New Zealand is successful in doing all of these things, it comes from her ability to refract stress, to refract input, to refract um, events and, and, and put them back out into the world and create an energy that is, again, human-centric, change-friendly, values-driven and self-disrupting which is the total inverse of what Donald Trump did. So I think that would be a better comparison looking at how Donald Trump turned the USA into the epicenter of the virus while many, many miles away, literally on the other side of the world in New Zealand, this young first time prime minister, a, a woman, you know, who's just, if you were to rewind the clock 10 years ago, would not look like, would not sound like what our popular conception of a leader is, is somehow the first person, mm -hmm. is, is, is the first person and the first leader of the first country who managed to get this under control. That says a lot. And there's, <laughs> to show you just how prepared she is for change, there's this one interview that I would encourage the leaders, the listeners to, to check out where there's an earthquake in the middle of the interview, a 5.8 magnitude earthquake. And the interviewer is like, uh, Prime Minister, are you okay over there? Like he's panicking and yeah. she's smiling. She did not even flinch, she didn't blink. She's like, oh, we're just having a bit of a shake here. It's okay, I'm in a structurally sound place. I looked at that and I was like, oh my goodness. You are so change friendly that an earthquake didn't phase you. Mm -hmm. Like superhuman. Yeah, I, I, got a, I got I got a massive crush on her. I'm just gonna put that out there. <laughs> Infatuated crush, just so your partner doesn't hear that. Yeah, man. No, for sure, for sure. I think yeah. I have a pass with Jacinda, man. <laughs> as as you were saying that, I was just thinking what it would be like to have her on the podcast because to see the kind of uh, what what the process that she took and what it, what other people could do um, to get to the level that she is, and thinking about that. So imagine. Uh, I I imagine that what she would say is. Um, I have a bias towards action for the people, which is not something that Donald Trump um, would say. Her priorities were very consistent with who she has always been, and she has been investing in her ability to be empathetic, to be a servant of the people, to value the diversity of people, and to be innovative and solve problems for tomorrow. She practices the side values uh, in a masterful way, such that when there was crisis, all she had to do was just be herself. She didn't have to pretend to be anything else. She didn't have to pull from a playbook. All she had to do is trust that when the amygdala takes over her prefrontal cortex, that the Jacinda that is there underneath, that the Jacinda that is there all along will make the right decision at a subconscious level. Good people become good leaders. I think it's really that simple. And that goes back to what I was saying about there being the optimist uh, side and the pessimist side, where it's like we look at Donald Trump and he's in the front of the media. We look at him and we say the world is going to negative place. If an alien comes by, we're screwed because we're we're going to be in chaos because of people like Donald Trump, people, other leaders like him. Uh, but then we look at the other side where we have the leaders, uh, the prime minister of uh, New Zealand. Uh, she's showing us that they might not be in the spotlight or they might be in the spotlight sometimes, but they're great leaders out there who are who are ready to lead us to the to the positive side of the, the world. Um, and, and look, man, I'm 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 aware that 
people are fallible. People make mistakes, prone to mistakes. You know, Justin Trudeau is not perfect. I'm sure Jacinda Ardern, there could be some very valid criticisms uh, about her, perhaps some of the same ones that are leveled against Justin Trudeau. So I'm always cautious to not engage in idol worship, to not engage in, in lionizing people and being critical of them. But it's hard to. It's hard, to, it's hard to, to look at Jacinda Ardern and find something that isn't admirable, that isn't desirable in terms of a style of leadership that I think is well-suited for the future of work. There's literally no downside to treating people with dignity, with compassion, with respect, to wanting the best for them at your own expense. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're Phil Jackson coaching the Chicago Bulls or the Los Angeles Lakers, or you're Sachin Adela reinventing Microsoft. It doesn't matter if you are Jay-Z partnering with Roger Goodell to think about a better way forward for the NFL or your Indra Nooyi um, reinventing PepsiCo. The common denominator across reinvented leaders, leaders who are pro-human, that are focused on truly changing the inside of the organization to meet the outside environment, it comes back down to those four values, right? The value of servitude, innovation, diversity, and empathy side. And I think that that model for me was really important to call the bright side of leadership because it exists as the opposite of the dark side of leadership. And the dark side of leadership is comprised of two different triangles. The first is the dark triad. And this is the values, or rather the, the, the traits of Machiavellianism, psychopathy, and narcissism, which ineffective leaders, destructive leaders have. They have all three, or at least one or two of them more active than the third, or one more active than the other two. But they have, in that combination, Machiavellianism, psychopathy, and, and, and narcissism, a series of destructive traits. And then when you pair that dark triad leader with the toxic triangle model, which is on the one vertex, you have the dark triad leader. On the other, you have colluders and conformers, the people that reinforce this reality bubble for the leader. And then you have an unstable environment. That is how you produce the preconditions for organizational destruction and collateral damage. So when you look at leaders who failed during the time of COVID, or you look at leaders who have failed in history, there's a good chance that you can point to those two models and use them as a lens to see what went wrong. What not to do. What not to do. But you'd be hard-pressed to find leaders who practice the bright side model and destroy their organizations. In fact, all successful organizations, at least the ones that I've been able to look at and, and run through the sieve of the bright side model in preparation for Leadership Reinvented, the book, are all still thriving. They're still doing the damn thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the thing, right? And, when, and that's uh, when you look at these leaders, the role models that you talk about, having these negative traits to them on the side, where it's like they're not perfect, they're not infallible. Uh, that's what makes them real. That's what makes when we take off the mask, we can say that we can become these people because they have flaws just like we do. Hamza is a role model for me because Hamza went through the same struggles that I'm going through or Hamza has made mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes because Hamza made them and he's successful in what he is doing today. Um, so look at, and that's what, that's what gives me hope with these role models. Um, looking at this situation, what do you see the world as like after COVID? For yourself, for the world as a whole, what do you see the world looking like? Whew. I hope for a more empathetic world. I hope for a world in which we're more open 
to new people, new ideas, new ways of thinking, new ways of being, new ways of acting in the world. Uh, and I hope that we reprioritize and refocus on the environment and we focus on marginalized peoples and how COVID, indiscrim uh, how COVID discriminated against certain people in our world, uh, namely people who are older, people who have comorbidities, underlying health challenges, people who uh, live in so low socioeconomic settings. And we think more empathically about these people and accept that we neglected them and we neglected to fund healthcare infrastructure, education infrastructure, food infrastructure. You know, we, we, we got caught up in the old ways of doing things. The BC version of humanity, if I could apply a term to them, it would be wilded. We were wilded, man. Yeah. In, in 2020, humanity was wilded. Like, yeah. And, and <laughs> for, for the listeners who for the listeners who who appreciate hip hop, Takashi Six Nine is a symptom, right? Takashi Six Nine is the human manifestation, like the human cancer mm -hmm. that appeared in the form of this exaggerated caricature of all the worst aspects of humanity that somehow became tolerable and acceptable to us. The fact that we even accepted something like Takashi, to me at perhaps at a metaphysical level is evidence that we were doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. Takashi shouldn't have existed. And I, sorry, I'm sorry to harp on Takashi over here. He's not, <laughs> he's not the only person, but I look at him as like a, a very tangible manifestation of what was wrong with the world, that we allowed a thing like that to be born and to be successful. So we were wild in, COVID-19 happened. And I think for all of us, I hope for all of us, it will be a wake up call to pay more attention to the delicate, interconnected and fragile nature of our planet. It's not uh, a series of, I mean, it is on the one hand, physically a series of rocks and land formations and, and masses, but at the humanity level, if we're talking about us as a collective organism, uh, we're a lattice pattern. We're a lattice, fragile, delicate lattice pattern. And I hope that we work more collectively. I hope that we work more intelligently. I hope that we, 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 we lick our wounds from this and we are able to, how do I say this? I hope we're able to forgive ourselves for any mistakes we made during this time, but I hope that we never forget what this was like, because I think it would be a huge mistake if we engage in the collective amnesia that I see bubbling up in other parts of the world where we pretend like COVID-19 never happened. That would be a huge mistake because we'll be doomed to repeat the same patterns that brought us into COVID-19 in the first place. And so I come back to this quote that it features heavily in my book, Leadership Reinvented from CEO, ex-CEO of GE, General Electric, Jack Welch, who said that if the rate of change inside of the organization is slower than the rate of change on the outside of the organization, the end is near. And so if we're not changing ourselves internally, and if we're not changing the way that we think about our society, we are opening up ourselves up to the possibility that externally in the places that we can't see new variants, new problems, new viruses. And heck, if you want to think cosmically, perhaps aliens out there are thinking about imposing themselves on us. And if we're not preparing ourselves today to meet that future, I don't know if we're going to be as successful the next time around. I, th I think we look back at it and we say that if this happened again, we could uh, deal with it and we could, uh, we could have done things differently. Like, oh, why didn't we do this a year ago? 
but if we go back to it, we would have made the same mistakes uh, and we would not, we would not have uh, dealt with it the way we say we would have dealt with it in, in re retrospect. Totally, Nabil. Barack Obama said in a Vice interview, he said the hardest thing for a president to do is to convince this generation to make a sacrifice for the next one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, us being locked up in our homes right now, staying at home and, uh, you know, making a personal sacrifice, letting go in our case of, of people who are, are relatively young, who are able to, to, to work and thrive in an online environment, we're making a sacrifice right, right now, in a way, for uh, the elderly and, and vulnerable members of our society, but also for the country as a whole. What would this look like at scale? Could we convince everyone on the planet in 2021 to make environmental sacrifices so that we can guarantee the longevity of our planet 5,000 years into the future and ensure that our great, 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 blah, 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 grandchildren can thrive? Or do we want to wild out again? Do we all want to start polluting and live in a way that's destructive and insular? And, you know, do we all want to let let Takashi inside of us fester and grow and become uh, a cancer that's a that's a question for the philosophers man we need to learn to not make those mistakes and the last yeah. point that i wanted to make before i started drawing to a conclusion uh, what i noticed another thing from your ted talk from the leadership one that you talked about uh was going remote when you started your own business you realized that going remote. this was in 2017 <laughs> way before the pandemic uh, I wanted you to comment on that to say, uh, <laughs> how do you feel about that now? How did, because you had already planned to go remote. Uh, 2020 comes and Hamza Khan's ready with his team. Uh, there's, there's nothing that can stop him because he's already remote. Uh, what, what would your thoughts be on that? Yeah, there's, there's a part of me that wants to jump up on this desk right now and be like, you MFs, I've, I effing told you that this was going to happen. Like, there's a part of me that genuinely wants to be like, I, I, I warned you about this. See, got him. Yeah. But I've learned to subdue that voice and be magnanimous in quote unquote victory. Um, I'm glad that I'm just happy genuinely that we figured this out. I, I wish it wasn't as sudden. I wish it wasn't as jarring. Um, and I say that because my father is being financially impacted by COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And I think about him and I worry about him every single day. I don't think that we have done a great job of equipping um, vulnerable members of our society to have the skills necessary to thrive in the future of work. And I worry that with business shutdowns and the future of our economy that there's going to be, I mean, there's 1.2 million Canadians unemployed at the time of recording this. Mm -hmm. It would break my heart if I wasn't able to help my dad, uh, help my mom not be in that uh, 1.2 million category and growing. So this is a, this is a tough one for me, man. This is this is this is a very very tough question for me to answer. Well, I draw I draw parallels from the conversation that we had today to the conversation that I had for my first uh, for the first episode, where it was looking at uh, the future of what education is like, uh, and that's what I talked about in the first one, which is changing up the curriculum. And you and you're an educator, so you know exactly what that's like, preparing for what the future of education is like. And we talked about it, my and you'll hear about it. Uh, that the fact that we needed to go to remote for the education system to develop. Before we were always in the classroom, we were not, we were having more lecture based. And there were certain educators like yourself amongst other professors yeah. who realized that the future of education had to transform. And the same thing with your speech, which is the, the future of leadership had to transform. It's not no longer about being there from nine to five as a job or being there from 
for three hours straight in a classroom. It's more about what are we taking from that classroom? What are we taking? From yeah, that- yeah, yeah. And and dude, when, when I did when I did that first TED talk, right? I, I remember a scary situation where immediately after that TED talk, I got a message from my boss saying we need to talk. And um, you know, my boss agreed with my perspectives and my way of leading my team at the time, which was virtual, uh, flexible, laissez-faire. He was always a great champion of mine, but he said that some of his colleagues were frankly shocked and appalled by my ideas, saying that it was uh, you know, seditious, it was promoting an ineffective way of working. And if more and more people got on board with this, that it would destabilize the established order. Like I said, man, I hate to say it, but like history has proved that this was the way, this was the way. And I feel like those leaders were just not paying attention to the changing external environment. They were so set in their ways, so convinced of the belief that people needed to be micromanaged in the office and there was no efficient way to do this at scale, but COVID-19 proved otherwise. Not only are people just as productive in many cases, most cases, they're more productive, especially when you when you isolate based on industry. So this is here to stay. Remote learning, remote working, uh, remote life is here to stay. The question is, will we as leaders acknowledge that or will we insist on going back to the way things were? If we insist on going back to the way things were, all we're doing is delaying the inevitable and setting ourselves up for future disappointment and destruction. So I would say to all leaders listening to this and all future leaders listening to this, find a way to accommodate the people that you work with. Um, this is, this is, I think, a much more accessible way forward. And, and I think when we look at scientific management, that's what scientific management told us. Uh, going from factory jobs to, uh, to more office jobs, it was the same idea. It's still how to be the most productive, be the most efficient. And that's what we tried to do with the nine to five workplace. Uh, coming to COVID-19, uh, where we're going remote, we're starting to see that that's not, scientific management takes it to a whole other level. You look at Tim Ferriss, four-hour work week. The idea as a whole is working remote uh, and, and doing something that you love can be more productive than actually sitting in an office and just running out the clock. Uh, if, if that exactly. Happens, right? Yeah, I'm on board with that, 100%. So I'm excited for the future. I'm glad we had this conversation. Before yeah, we man. conclusion, is there anything you would like to ask me? I know we had this when we had this conversation last time on Zoom. Uh, I thought I wish we had recorded it because that would have been a perfect podcast episode. And I was like, we got to recreate that today. Uh, but just yeah, before we conclude, if there's anything that you would like to ask me, yeah, man. Um, first of all, would you? I would be honored, and and if you accepted this, but would you? Would you like to be a guest on Ideas into Action? I would love to have you on my podcast and keep this conversation going. It would be my honor. I think uh, the reason that I got pushed into starting this podcast, I was waiting for Hamza Khan to invite me to his podcast after our last Zoom call. Uh, when is that launching, by the way? It's got to wait. So I'm focused right now on uh, promoting this book. Uh, March 9th is when it's going to be out. Um, so hopefully, if you're listening to this podcast, it is before the book is out. And you can go to leadershipreinvented.co and learn more about the book, get a free chapter. But you can also follow me everywhere on social media. I'm everywhere now, I think, including TikTok, Snapchat, Clubhouse. Uh, not that hard to find. And you know, I'll keep you updated with regards to all things Leadership Reinvented. But once the book is done, I'm going to then shift my energy to reviving the podcast. So I would say no later than the end of Q2 2021. Okay, that's exciting. I think uh, when I saw your uh, trailer, I asked you was the podcast and you I was given an indirect answer. Uh, <laughs> when I know when I noticed the book, I was very excited. I'm really yeah, excited. Thank to read you, man. Book. Uh, I've already pre ordered it. And I think fantastic. I'm, 
the same lines as Mahfouz, Astawa, all these guys have all pre-ordered it. So I'm yeah, excited dude. for that to be one of the first. Uh, it would be cool if we could do like a giveaway to your listeners, man. I would I'd be more than happy to like send out a book to one of them. I would be I would be happy to do that. If you do one, sure. I'll do another two. Uh, I'll order another two and we'll do three three book giveaway. Sounds great. I and mean, we can we can take this conversation even offline as well. I can hook you up with the author discount. So Okay, um, awesome. We'll That's we'll perfect. figure something out. We'll figure something out. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for having this conversation. Uh we'll t- we'll chat more. Nabil, thank you so much. This was an absolute honor. And uh, to all the listeners, thank you. I appreciate it.